0: Father, we thank you that you speak to us here today by your spirit as we read these words that were written over two, uh, nearly 2,000 years ago. Uh, we pray that we might hear your voice this morning. Amen. There are few things in the workplace that are more unsettling, scary, potentially transformative than the news that the boss is leaving. The, uh, the head teacher in the school that I used to teach in before starting this role. Every now and then, he liked to, um, to set the cat among the pigeons. He'd spend lots of his time, especially around March, April, May, having long discussions with staff about whether they were going to stay or whether they were going to leave, about who else was leaving, about how everyone was feeling about that. And then every, every uh, few years, he'd just throw in a, well, oh, I'm, sure I'm not sure how long I'll be around. I might leave. I think he did it um, for the laugh, to be honest. Uh, he's still there three years later. But it did, uh, it did send the rest of us into a bit of a panic, the thought that, that even he, the head, might leave. Now, uh, human bosses are, are far from perfect. Uh, think of our political situation at the moment. Sometimes a boss's departure can be something, something that we celebrate rather than uh, commiserate. But uh, with a good boss, the risk of them leaving can be terrifying. For who knows what and how much will change. And I think that's something like what we have with the disciples in John 14. Uh, If you've been with us this last few weeks, you'll know, as we were saying with the children, that Jesus made a shock announcement in chapter 13, verse 33, that he's going. Uh, Going, he says, at the end of chapter 13, to his death. And for the disciples, I think this calls into question their whole existence, the entirety of their past 3 years following with Jesus following Jesus everything that they had come to believe and to trust about Jesus god themselves god's kingdom the future it's all thrown into confusion for the boss is leaving and they felt troubled verse 1 of chapter 14 and they felt afraid as Jenny just read for us in verse 27 of chapter 14 And that should be no surprise. For how could the mission continue? How could they be led without their leader? How could they keep going on their own? And maybe we feel a bit like that. We'd really rather Jesus were here with us, physically walking among us, obviously leading his people. Maybe we're even a bit surprised he's decided not to be here a bit underwhelmed by by the ascension, his having gone back to heaven so soon after rising. Not the call that I would have made, we feel. Does Jesus not see the weakness, the brokenness of the church? Does he not see the disrepute the church is in, the persecution Christians face around the world, the division in the church? Where is he? We need a leader who is here. Why isn't he? Can we really go on? Can we continue? Can we keep going on our own? Maybe you feel that uh, in your workplace. New initiatives, ethical guidelines are brought in that don't sit comfortably for you as a Christian. Maybe you feel that uh, at school. You're the only Christian in your class, maybe in your year. Maybe you feel that in your family. Or, or you long-term friendship group. After all these years, you're still in the, in the minority as a Christian. And maybe you feel like you don't have the resources you need, the leadership you need to carry on. Well, if we ever feel like that, if we ever ask those questions, I think there's food for our souls in this chapter. So we know already, as we've seen in the last uh, couple of weeks, that Jesus is going to bring the disciples to be with him in heaven. And he's going so that he can continue to make his father known, but in a new way now, through the great works that the church will do. And then in verses 15 to 31, I think we get one more answer to the question. Why is Jesus going? Why is it better for God's people for Jesus to go? And that answer is that he is going so that he can come to live with his disciples by his Spirit. He's coming, he's going so that he can come to live with his disciples by the Spirit. We'll explore four things about the Spirit's coming, our four truths Jesus then goes on to, uh, to give the disciples, to help them not to feel troubled and afraid, and to help us not to feel troubled and afraid. The first one, do not be troubled because the Spirit comes as an advocate. Do not be troubled because the Spirit comes as an advocate. Verses 16 and 17. Look down with me at verse 16. I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth the disciples will not be left on their own because Jesus will ask his Father and his Father will send someone to them. Who? An advocate. We're perhaps not quite sure what to do with that. Uh, we think perhaps of, of a counsellor, as some of the older translations put it, you know, the, the person with the clipboard, the concerned smile, the nodding head, the well-chosen question. Or we think helper, As other translations put it, and we think maybe of of the classroom assistant, lovely, encouraging, really good with the laminator and the glue stick. Or we think of a comforter, and a sort of maybe grandparent-type figure, ready with a box of tissues, a listening ear, a lollipop, a chin-up encouragement. I think there are elements of truth in all those images, but I don't think any of them quite gets it right on its own. Um, The Greek word translated advocate, uh, parakletos, at its simplest means someone that you call alongside, someone you call alongside you. That was most frequently used in the legal context. Uh, Probably only a handful of us in this room will have had experience of being formally represented by a legal advocate. But um, think of the solicitor sent to the jail cell as, as legal aid to the defendant who has not a friend left in the world, no money, no one to call to their aid. that The solicitor commissioned to put their time and their energy into exploring this person's case, turning over every stone as they seek to clear their name. The solicitor who spends hours advising, supporting the client, and then stands up in court to represent them, speaking in their place, on their behalf, showing them, in their best possible light. The Spirit will come alongside these scared disciples, and he will come alongside them as their advocate. Uh, and notice um, the Father will send another advocate in verse 16. Uh, this is not the first advocate for the Father to dispatch. For the disciples, they already have an advocate who has come alongside them in Jesus. Whatever this new advocate does, he's going to operate very much in line with the Son and the Father. I'm not sure that we should be expecting a very different kind of ministry from the Spirit to that of the Father and the Son. And this advocate, the end of verse 16, will be with you forever. Though the world cannot see, know, or accept him, verse 17, you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. He won't just be there for a little while when times are tough and then go, as Jesus in his physical body is about physically to do. But this advocate is promised to them forever. He's not just a temporary gift to get us to the other side of Jesus' second coming. He will be with us forever. Remember our uh, legal aid solicitor. Well, imagine now that they stay with their client after the case has been closed. And they help their client to get a job, to find somewhere to live, to make friends and become part of the community again. And they become a trusted friend and support to their clients. They're there for their client's birthdays, for their wedding, for their funeral many years later. The disciples need not be troubled because they will not be left on their own. The Spirit will come alongside them as an advocate forever. And so we are not on our own, however alone we may at times feel. God has not abandoned his church to fend for ourselves for 2,000 plus years. He has not left us powerless and friendless. So no matter how much we may feel on our own, no matter how much we may, back, may look back on a former time when we felt closer to God, when we knew his work in our life more clearly, God has not left us on our own, even now. He's with us. He sent us his Spirit and his spirit will never leave us. And his spirit is our advocate, our representative, the one who fights our corner for us. He's not just some pleasant, benign, but sort of ultimately ineffective helper figure. He certainly is caring and comforting and consoling, but he is also our advocate, fighting our corner, representing us. For all of eternity and so when we feel the need to fight our own corner to speak up for ourselves because no one else will to tell ourselves or others how great we are we don't need to we have the Spirit he fights our corner far better than we do so the Spirit comes alongside us as our advocate and second do not be troubled, because in the Spirit coming, Jesus is coming. In the Spirit coming, Jesus is coming. From verses 18 and 19. Now look down at verse 18 with me. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you, Jesus goes on to say. And I think this um, leads us to another way that we sometimes misunderstand the Spirit. We kind of separate out the members of the Trinity and we assume that in the spirit we're getting something inferior, a substitute. You know, The spirit's a bit like the substitute football player who only gets called off the bench when the good player's injured or too tired to carry on. And we're a bit disappointed about this. Who wants to see Joel Samuels returning for the Neighbours finale when you could have Kylie Minogue and Jason Donovan in it, But that is not what is going on here. In getting the Spirit, we are not given the substitute, the lesser version of God. For in the Spirit, coming to the disciples, the Son himself comes to them. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Before long the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Now, there is an argument that, that Jesus is jumping ahead to his return, to his second coming at this point. But most commentators, and surely the most natural reading of the passage, is that Jesus is saying that he will come to them and they will see him through the Spirit. Not physical sight now, but spiritual sight. The Spirit's coming to them will be the Son and the Father's coming to them. Because the Spirit is not a lesser partner in the Trinity, the inferior one, the substitute. He is as much at the heart of God as the Father and the Son. And so in the Spirit, God's people will have God with them, as they did when Jesus walked the shores of Galilee, but now with him through his Spirit in their hearts have the Spirit with us is to have God with us. So don't divorce the Trinity. Don't relegate the Spirit to the substitute role. And I wonder, maybe, maybe we sometimes find ourselves thinking of the Spirit as a sort of, sort of poor man's God, a lesser presence, a lesser person, a lesser experience. He's lucky if we call him him rather than it. Or maybe we, um, maybe we don't really understand the Spirit, so we just kind of avoid thinking about him too much and focus on Jesus, who seems a bit more straightforward, a bit less controversial. Or we just feel a bit disappointed that we only have the Spirit now. We wish we were on earth when Jesus was physically here. We, we want Jesus himself stood in front of us, walking with us. Well, let's remember then that to have the Spirit living in us is to have God living in us to have the spirit in our hearts is not to have some poor half god substitute but it's to have christ himself come to us so the spirit is our advocate coming alongside us in the spirit coming to us christ comes to us thirdly do not be troubled Because the Spirit comes by moving in to all who obey Jesus. The Spirit comes by moving in to all who obey Jesus. Verses 20 to 24. Uh, Verse 20, look down with me. On that day you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Jesus says taps into another way, that we misunderstand the Spirit, I think, and that's that we fail to get the level of connection with God that we have through the Spirit. We think perhaps that the Spirit is um, there to give us specialist help when we're in crisis, Uh, like an overworked GP who'd rather speak to us on the phone than see us face to face. Or we think he's powerful to help, but his remit is quite specific. He's like the lawyer, he's great when it comes to executing the will, but isn't going to help you plan the funeral or be a shoulder to cry on or help you to work out how to do life without your loved one. Or we think he's powerful to help and he wants to help, but he's just really busy. He's like the boss who you know will sit in on your meeting with a tricky client if you really need them to, but you also know that you're not meant to ask unless you're absolutely desperate. Well, none of these are the kind of relationship that we have with Jesus, that we have with God through the Spirit. Verse 21. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. It's the language of love, of intimacy. This passage is filled with God's love for us and our love for God. Verse 23, Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. This doesn't sound to me like the boss, whose personal phone number you have, but you're only allowed to use in absolute emergencies. Sounds more like a God you're allowed to have on speed dial. For he loves his people so much that not only did he come down and live as, one, as a, live as one of them in the incarnation, but he now wants to come down and live inside each of them through his spirit. And last week, if you were here, you might have remembered we were, we were shocked, or at least I think the disciples were shocked, Uh, to learn in response to Philip's question in verse 8, that to see Jesus is to see God the Father, because Christ is in the Father, and the Father is in Christ. Well, verse 20, you are in me, and I am in you. Well, suddenly it's notched up a million years For not just is the Son in the Father and the Father in the Son, but we are in God and God is in us. No wonder Judas doesn't really get it in verse 22. And of course, we are not in God in quite the sense that the Son is in the Father. But nevertheless, we are in God and he is in us. He's made his home in us. What an incredible privilege. Uh, During the jubilee last month, the uh, Duke and Duchess of Cambridge decided to make a visit to one of the many street parties going on around the country. And the one they chose to go to was the one hosted by my old church in West London. And I can tell you from the photos, the videos, the comments on social media, that my former church family were pretty excited. They felt it quite the privilege to have such honoured guests come and be among them. But imagine now that William and Kate didn't just drop by for an hour or so. Imagine that they came to stay. They moved into the spare room in the vicarage next door to the church and started attending services and meetings, moving their children to the local school, going to the local shops, committing to the St. Helens church family and community. That's what God has done through his spirit. He's not just paid us a visit. When we're most in need, he's arrived, unpacked, and set up home, and thrown away his suitcase, for he won't be needing it again. Do you realise that in the Spirit, God lives in you? That means that He's there all the time, He knows you inside and out, He sees your deepest desires and reads your darkest thoughts. Be careful of trying to compartmentalize your life. My work bit here, my family bit here, my God bit over there. It's futile. The Spirit lives in you. It also means that we mustn't only be interested in him for what we feel he can do for us. Charismatic gifts, yes, Deeper experience of worship, yes. More satisfying prayer life, yes. Bolder acts of faith, yes. The Spirit may well give us some or all of those things. But to live with him, well, that's put simply, to do life with God. It's a bit like um, like marriage. I'm not only interested in my wife Charlotte when I'm on marriage time, as opposed to when I'm on work time or social time or rest time as if she bears no relevance to any other sphere of my life. Nor am I only interested in her when she does the special, wifely things, whether that's getting me a birthday present or taking the kids off my hands. No, because we're married, I do life with her, the whole of it. She's involved, at least to some degree, in every part of my life. And my interest in her isn't just in what she can do for me, and so for us as Christians, if the Spirit is in us, then God has come to live with us, to do life with us. And that is extraordinary. But we've, uh, we've skipped something. Uh, the preface to the extraordinary revelation in verse 23, that my Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them, was the statement, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. And we wonder... This this extraordinary intimacy we're promised with Christ through the Spirit, well, is it tied to a condition that we have to obey him? And we're grace-centered people. We believe in the God of grace and salvation by grace. So we uh, we get our tipex out, or or at least we just skip over the phrase and pretend it isn't there. But I don't think Jesus will let us, because we get something similar three times. Uh, Verse 15, if you love me, keep my commands. Verse 21, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And then again in verse 23. So is our God just like every other, demanding that we do what he wants before he will give us his favour? No. John writes elsewhere, 1 John 4, verse 19, we love Because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. We do not love God so that he will love us. This isn't tit for tat. We do something for God. He'll do something for us. No, we love because he first loved us. We would not even be able to love God, to obey God, had he not first loved us. And so we now love because he's loved us. A salvation in which there's no loving response from us to God's love for us. A salvation which claims to accept the free gift of grace and then carries on with life much as before. No changed heart, changed affections, changed actions, changed words. Well, is that really salvation at all? Or is that just claiming? To be a Christian. The test, says Jesus, is whether we obey. Now, of course, sin still dwells in us. Perfect obedience is not what's being asked for here. But true love, well, that isn't just some ephemeral feeling, spouting the right words, believing the right things. It's action. It's a heart that's willing to have a scalpel taken to it, A heart that reads scripture and expects, looks to be changed by it. A heart that reads scripture to do as well as to know and to think. If we've known God's love, then we will love God. And we will love him by obeying him. So let me ask, as I've been asking myself this week, does your life at this moment, show the fruit of God's love for you? Is it clear for people to see that you're a person who's been loved by God? Does the ease with which you forgive other people when they've wronged you show that you're someone who's been forgiven? Does the way that you use your body reveal that your body is not your own, but that it's been bought at a price? Does the mercy and kindness you show to all people, especially though to those who deserve it least, show that you have been loved, though you are unworthy? The disciples need not be troubled, for the Spirit will come alongside them as an advocate. Spirit's coming as Christ's coming, and he will move in to all who obey Jesus. Finally, do not be troubled, because Jesus going... And the Spirit coming is a good thing. Jesus going and the Spirit coming is a good thing. Verses 25 to 31. Uh, With the beginning of verse 25, uh, all this I have spoken while still with you, we're reminded once more that Jesus is going. And the final verses of this chapter uh, assure us not only that he is going, but that his going is a good thing. Verse 28, uh, if you loved me, You would be glad that I am going to the Father. I mean, it may feel quite obvious why it's good for Jesus that he's going. Uh, His work is complete. He gets to go back to his Father and enjoy the glory he's enjoyed with his Father since uh, before creation. John 17, verse 5. But it is also good for us that he's going. Because it means that we will get to go too. And because it means that we will get the Spirit. And I wonder whether we sometimes fail to imagine what Christian life would be like now without the Spirit. We maybe don't realise what we have. And it would be incredible to have Jesus physically standing here in this room. But remember, one of the most extraordinary things about Jesus taking on humanity was that he became human and that meant he limited himself. He limited himself to the conditions of being human. He could be in one place at one time with one group of people. And like any other human, he needed to set aside time to sleep, to stop, to eat, to rest, to relax. And that was okay at the time when he came, as the truth remains still largely in a not yet dispersed Jewish people around Jerusalem in Galilee, where he could, on foot, travel from town to town and meet hundreds of people. But what would he do now if we didn't have the Spirit? And if Jesus was still physically present on earth, where would he go? Where would he base himself? How would he get around all of the Christians? Would he spend the whole of his life on a plane, travelling from church to church around the globe? How many visits could we expect from him at Maudlin Road? On every decade or two, on every century. It is better for us to have the Spirit because the church is so much greater than the Jewish people when Jesus came. And the Spirit means that Christ can simultaneously be present in and with every Christian, in every church, in every place, all at the same time. And we need not fear that to not have Jesus walking among us means a level of distance that is inadequate. For In verses 25 and 26, uh, Jesus says that one of the Spirit's chief tasks was to inspire the apostles to get Jesus' words written down for us in the New Testament. And for us too, the Spirit leads us to Christ's words. He gives the Bible a megaphone. He sharpens the knife of God's word that pierces our hearts. We should be careful, I think, of coming to the Spirit, asking for different revelations, different words, different messages, new things that we've not heard before. I think rather the Spirit's role is to open our eyes to the words God has already given us, to place on our hearts the Word of God as it is for us, as it applies in the particular situations of our lives, and to enthrall us as we read God's Word such that our hearts burn as we hear what he says to us today. And so it's good for Jesus that Jesus was going. And it's good for us that Jesus went. And there's no reason to fear that this was a sign that God's plans had failed. For verses 30 and 31, though the prince of the world thought that he had won as Jesus departed, as Jesus died on the cross, no. No. God was still in charge. Jesus' departure, the Spirit's coming, was all a part of God's plan. Just another step in the Son doing exactly what his Father had commanded him. And so we finish the chapter where we began. Verse 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Verse 27, peace I leave you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. So do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. A few moments for reflection and I'll lead us in a prayer. Father, help us to see how good it is for us to have the Spirit with us. Help us to believe that it is better that we have the Spirit now filling the church, filling our hearts as individual believers. Help us not to be troubled and afraid when we feel alone, when we doubt, when we hurt. Help us to know that in the Spirit we have you with us as our advocate by our side, having made your home in us forever. Amen.